hear that great hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. I, I always think of my mom. It was one of her very favorite hymns. And when it comes to the point of all the saints casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea, I just imagine that that's what she's doing right now. And it's a, it's a picture of, of uh, life in Christ eternal that you and I are invited to and destined to. Amen? Man, what a great, great hymn. I can remember when my mom would take me to the doctor as a kid and I would sit on the ed- edge of the table and the doctor would walk towards me with that flesh-colored triangular mall- mallet in her hands and she would walk up to my leg and she would hit it right beneath my kneecap. Do you remember that? And she was testing your what? Your reflexes, Yeah. Uh, reflexes are a really important part of life. Uh, your physical reflexes, you're grateful for them every single time you touch a hot surface and pull your hand back quickly. Uh, but we don't just have physical reflexes. We also have social reflexes and emotional reflexes and even spiritual reflexes. There's a, a right way to respond to things that we experience. There's a right way to respond to a sunset. You know, we, we pause and we take it in. There's a right way to respond to a newborn baby, right? We ooh and we ah. Nobody looks at a newborn baby and goes, yeah, I've seen better. No, no, we, we pause, we Take it in. There's a a right way to respond to music, to a a concert that we we sing along or we dance unless we're Baptist and then we tap our foot. Right. Right. There's a right way to respond. There's a right way to respond when we stub our toe. We say you're in church. Remember, you're in church. Yeah, we say, ouch, ouch. There's a right way to respond when somebody gives us a piece of uh, pineapple pizza. We take it over to the trash can and we throw it away immediately because it shall not be, right? There's a right way to respond to things. There's also a, a wrong way to respond. And we live in a cultural moment where we've become desensitized to some things that our heart should probably be a little bit more stirred by. Uh, maybe we think about violence or suffering. It's just so ubiquitous that at times it can um, be hard to respond in the way that it, maybe we should. Or on the opposite side of that spectrum, we live in a cultural moment of outrage. On both sides of the aisle, we overreact to things. And that's just sort of part of the air that we breathe right now. But this section of scripture we're going to dive into this morning is Paul calling the church of Ephesus to respond rightly to the truth that he's spoken over them, to align their lives with it in a way that their response is in line with reality. And if you have your Bible with you, I'd invite you to open to Ephesians chapter 4. We're beginning in verse 1 this morning, and if you've been with us over the last six weeks... And you're wondering to yourself, when in the world is the letter to the Ephesians going to get practical? When's Paul going to give us some commands? When's he going to tell us what to do with all of this? Today is your day. 
because verse 1 of chapter 4 is the pivot point in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. It's where he goes from what, what, we've, what we would call indicatives, truths, to imperatives, commands. But this is true of you too. This is what you should do with it. That's on page 999 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And I hope you're there as we dive into Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter 4 beginning in verse 1. Remember, Paul's writing in roughly 62 AD. He's writing from a Roman jail cell or from house arrest in Rome to a church in Ephesus that he loves dearly. And listen to what he says. He writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk. It was a Hebrew idiom, walk is, for your life. Not for your spiritual life, but for your whole life, for your waking and your sleeping, for your working and your playing, for your joy and your sorrow, to take it all. And and it's a way of talking about living. To walk, he says, in a manner, what? Worthy. Worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Now, this word worthy can be a little bit of a holdup for us if we read it wrong. Because a lot of us, uh, we read the word worthy and we think, well, well, make sure that you uh, make yourself worthy of Jesus' sacrifice. Make sure that the way that you live doesn't mean that he died in vain. Make sure that you, you earn it by what you do. But that isn't at all what worthy means. Worthy in the original Greek, the language that Paul's writing in, could have been read um, that you would be fit or that you would be a match with or that you would align your life with, that your reflex would be in line with the reality that's been spoken over you. And so he says, make sure you align with the calling to which you've been called, which begs the question, what's the calling? If you've been with us over the last six weeks, we've been unpacking the calling. If you haven't been here, let me give you the 30,000 foot bird's eye view of where we've been. Here's the calling over every follower of Jesus. You are in Christ. That means that your past is forgiven, your present is blessed, and your future is secure. You have been completely forgiven. You have been made holy and the spirit of the living God dwells within you. You've been called to live as a body of believers together who are rooted and grounded in love. Friends, calling is not for a unique few followers of Jesus who become pastors or missionaries. Calling is for every single follower of Jesus. Every disciple is called, is called. And Paul then goes on and he writes in this section of scripture about what happens when we live aligned with that calling. Skip down to verse 13 with me. He's going to talk about the outplay of this. He says, until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the son of God to mature manhood or personhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Do you get the picture of where this is all heading? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Paul says, listen, when you live aligned with that calling, you become 
mature. Mature. I don't know about you, but I have a picture in my mind of what maturity looks like. And it was the exact opposite of the way that my kids acted at their great-grandmother's house yesterday. Something happens. We drive up to Fallbrook to visit their great-grandmother, my grandmother-in-law, and they lose their mind. We walk into their house and they're hanging off the ceiling pretty much. And I told them yesterday, I looked at them and said, I just want you to be more mature. And here's what I meant by that. Have less fun. Like push the energy down just a little bit. Uh, Be more mature. And and here's a mature does not mean having less fun. It doesn't mean having less energy. You know what it also doesn't mean? It doesn't mean being older because you can be older and not get more mature. Don't elbow anybody. This is church. This is a safe spot, right? But here's what mature means. It means that we are fitted or completed for that which we were designed to do. To be a mature human is to reach the potential that God has placed inside of us when he put his image and his stamp on us. And so if we put all of this together, what Paul's writing in this section of scripture to the church in Ephesus is he's saying, listen, alignment with God's call positions us to realize our our potential to become mature. But if we can be in alignment, that also means that we can be out of alignment. We can pull to one way or one side or the other. And I think Paul has already addressed the two um, polarities of the pendulum to which the Christian life can be pulled. Um, We can spend all of our time, as he wrote about in chapter 1, searching for insight and revelation. Sort of focused in. Or we can spend our time living in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that we are designed for good works that God prepared beforehand for us to walk into. We can spend all of our time soaking in or all of our time pouring out. And what Paul wants to do is he wants to address the life of the follower of Jesus and he wants to say, no, 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 it's not an either or thing. It's It's an in and an out. In fact, in and out, in and out. That's what apprenticeship to Jesus is all about. It's, it's both. And it's a tension that we have to manage as followers of Jesus. We can't fall too hard on one side or the other, or we miss the invitation that God has in front of us. And so to use these two categories to explore the rest of this text, Paul begins by saying that you were designed to pour out. And part of aligning with that call means that you give your life away for the sake of others. That if we only learn and we only study the Bible and we only go to services and gatherings and we only sort of feed ourselves up, we'll become like the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is dead not because it lacks nutrients. It's dead because it lacks an outflow. When water goes into the Dead Sea, it stays there until it evaporates. And then you have all of these nutrients and salt that just sit in the water, but no water can leave. 
And some followers of Jesus, this is what their life is like. They, they go through the buffet table of Christianity and they just keep going back for more and more and more. I heard one person say that we have a lot of obese Christians in the American church. We just keep taking in and taking in and taking in. And what Paul's going to write to the church in Ephesus is, no, 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 you were designed to take in. We'll get there. But you were designed to pour your life out also. Look at the way that he says this in verse 2. He says, live in light and worthy of the calling that you've received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. If we could summarize this in one phrase, it would be that we pour ourselves out by prioritizing others. By prioritizing others. Paul begins with saying, listen, as a follower of Jesus, you've got to have a new view of yourself. He uses the word humility. And back in the ancient world, humility was not something to be sought after. It was something to be avoided. It was seen as weakness. And if you think that humility is a positive thing, you have Jesus of Nazareth to thank for that. Because he's the one and his followers who started to reframe it. I love as we think about humility, I love the way that C.S. Lewis put it. He said this, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It was a new virtue. If you want to practice humility this week, here's one way you can do it. Just practice the discipline of not having to get the last word. I'll be praying for you. It's, it's not an easy thing, is it? But then Paul continues to go and he says, um, with humility, a new view of ourself. And then he starts talking about others with gentleness and with patience, bearing with one another in love. I absolutely love that the New Testament never paints an idealistic picture of being part of the body of Christ. It's always very real. It's very grounded in the nitty gritty. And what Paul writes is there are going to be people in your life because you are a part of the church who you need to be patient with. People that are going to rub you the wrong way. And you're going to want to respond vindictively. But take a deep breath. And there are going to be people who you need to bear with. Do you know what the implication of that is? That you'd rather not bear with them. That you would rather walk out these doors and go, listen, I'm going to find another church. That person offended me. That's a little bit too painful. They got a little bit too personal. They got a little bit too close. And so I'm out. But did you know, did you know that your journey towards maturity demands it's not an option. It demands that we practice the discipline of bearing with people who rub us the wrong way. And we remember that we are those people for someone else. And if nobody rubs you the wrong way, you're probably the person that rubs others the wrong way. But Paul continues, he goes, listen, that's not the only way that we pour ourselves out. We also do this eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. And the bond of peace. It's really interesting because what Paul is saying is that unity is something that Jesus purchased, but that you and I must maintain. We, we've got to fight for this, friends. We, we have to be in the battle eager to maintain unity. And Paul will go on and he begins to write in verse 4 how that's done and why that's done. 
He writes, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope, which belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Do you sense a theme, Emmanuel, faith? One. One. How many churches are there? One. One. Most people think that this was in a creed of the early church, that when they would gather in homes all across the Roman Empire and, and throughout Jerusalem, they would repeat this phrase. They would repeat this saying. And, and a creed does two things. It's one of the reasons that we, we started to say the Apostles' Creed. A creed does two things. It reminds us of what we believe, which is really, really important. But it also reminds us we're not the only ones who believe. We're not part of something new here. We're part of a stream that has been going for a few thousand years of followers of Jesus who have bowed at his throne and we are encompassed into that body. And so Paul says, have a different view of yourself, a different view of others and a new call to fight for unity. It's one of the ways we pour ourselves out for each other. But he transitions and he starts to write about another way that we pour ourselves out in verse 7. And he says this. But grace was given to each one of us, every single one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Paul is quoting out of Psalm 68. And then he gives some commentary on it and he writes this. In saying he ascended, What does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, it's a little bit of a confusing sentence, but once you understand the idea behind it, it makes a lot of sense. What Paul's writing is that Jesus, being the son of God, descended in clothing himself in humanity, the incarnation. And he descended even further into the ground when he gave himself for you and I on the cross and was buried. And he ascended when he rose from the grave and ascended into heaven where he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. And Paul pulls this thread from Psalm 68 that uses the imagery of a king walking back into their hometown after being victorious at war. And they come in with a cart full and a host of gifts. And when they come into town, they're given gifts to all of their people as a reminder that they have been victorious. And Paul pulls this image into talking about the church. And he says, listen, Jesus has been victorious. He has conquered sin and he has conquered death. And by the power of his spirit, he has given his church gifts spiritual gifts to be used to build up the body that we would pour ourselves out for the sake of others. But grace was given to each one of us. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are gifted. You have something that the Spirit of God has placed inside of you that you are called to contribute to the body. 
Now, we have a variety of gifts. Not all gifts are the same, but every single gift is given for the exact same purpose. And Paul writes about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 when he says, to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. We don't have the same gifts, but we all have the same goal, that we might build up the body, that we might be an encouragement to one another. If you're sort of new to the discussion of spiritual gifts, here's my best definition of what a spiritual gift is. Spiritual gifts are gifts that God, or God-given gifts or abilities to serve God and others in such a way that Christ is glorified and believers are edified. Do you know what spiritual gifts you have? I would encourage you, try to find out. The best place to start is by serving, by giving yourself somewhere and seeing what kind of response you get from the others, from people around you. See what is affirmed in you and see what is called out of you. See, in the New Testament, we are called to utilize the gifts that we have to pour ourselves out for the sake of others. If you were to read through the whole New Testament, you'll find five places that spiritual gifts are discussed. 20 different gifts that are identified. And some of those gifts are in um, different lists and there's overlap in some of them and some of them are unique to one or the other. But I don't think the New Testament ever intends to give us an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts. It intends to give us the call to use what God has placed inside of us for the building up of the body. If you can sing, sing to the glory of God. If you're an encourager, encourage the people around you. If you can organize, organize. If you're hospitable, we need you. If you're a teacher, teach. But use what God has given you to build up the body. Will you please, will you lean in for just a moment? If you've checked out, I don't want you to miss this part. Manual faith. We need you to be who God has called you to be. If we are going to become all that God has intended us to be. That will never happen on the, on the backs of a few people. It will happen as the entire body says, this is my church and I want to invest and I want to serve and I want to give and I want to use the gifts God's given me. I'm going to get off of the sideline and into the game. It's his design for you. And see, if you don't pour out, you'll be like the Dead Sea. But if all you do is serve and all you do is pour out, then you'll eventually become a depleted soul. And so God designed us for both in and out. And so we don't only pour ourselves out, we also are designed to soak in. And God in his wisdom has made provision for the church to be a growing organism where people develop their potential and where gifts are released in order to make much of the name of God. And listen to the way Paul begins to write about how that happens. Verse 11. And he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, there's a lot of debate around this text about whether or not all of these five gifts are gifts or offices. 
my personal conviction is that they function currently as gifts that people have been given. Not offices that people hold or roles that people have, but gifts that they're called to use to build up the body. And so let me give you at a high level what these gifts look like played out. The gift of, of, of apostleship. These are people who are always sensing God's calling us to the next thing. These are people who, if you love the status quo, drive you absolutely crazy. Because there's, they're going, there's more that we can do. Oftentimes, people with a gifting of, of apostleship are church planters or they're missionaries. They're going, God's calling us to the next hill, the next mountain. People with a prophetic gifting are people who foretell and foretell. They're people that would say, I really sense that as we read this text, this is what God is saying to us. But people with a prophetic gifting um, can also be really great counselors or spiritual directors, or mentors, disciplers. They also have a strong bent towards justice, right and wrong. Evangelists are the people who are concerned with the people who aren't here, and they want to catalyze the body to reach out to the community and reach out to the people that aren't yet followers of Jesus, inviting others into the kingdom of God. Then pastors and teachers, it's really one gifting in the way that the Greek is written. These are people who uh, care for the souls of others. They teach the scriptures. They teach people the way of Jesus. But, But when you think about pastors and teachers, don't think of people just who stand on a platform and teach. Jesus very rarely did that. But he was the best teacher to ever walk the face of the planet. He would teach on the road as they were walking places, in homes when people gathered. And so that category probably should be expanded. But here's what Paul writes to this church. He says, when all of those people are functioning with their gifting, the body begins to grow. Because people in it are nourished. People in it can soak in. People in it are fed. They're they're equipped through training. They're equipped through encouragement. They're equipped through love. But when the church isn't able to release the gifts of apostles, apostleship, or a prophetic gifting, or evangelistic gifting, or teachers, or shepherds, when that doesn't happen, the church is stagnated and stops growing. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12 give us a very different picture of what it looks like to be a part of even just say a church staff. That our goal as a church staff is not to do all the ministry. You know that, right? Our goal as a church staff is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That that staff and and pastors and teachers, that that these people are, are far more like, to use a sports analogy, they're far more like the coaches than the players. They're the Andy Reeds, not the Patrick Mahomes. They get people in the right place to use their gifts to make much of God's name. And I love the way that that's happening here at Emmanuel Faith. One event that we had just a few weeks ago was called Superfest. And I absolutely love what God did here because this wasn't our staff's idea. Uh, This was John Goodman and Larry Michael who came to our staff and said, I sense God inviting us to use the Super Bowl to make much of the name of Jesus. And we went, wow, that's a great idea. And what they did was they recruited 97 volunteers 
and they held out the word of Jesus and had 60 people make some sort of faith response to the gospel at that event. And they saw 725 people come through the doors of Emmanuel faith. Praise be to God. Our staff did not run that event. You all ran that event. Um, even right now we have Anna and Austin Nielsen who are running a group for foster and adoptive parents walking that difficult road of what does it look like to live out the way of Jesus in those areas. That's a lay led event. They are running with that and it's a beautiful thing. Uh, we have people like Mike and Kathy McGinnis running divorce care, Sharon Chapman and her team who are working with freedom in Christ. And these are all ways that people are being released to use their gifts to build up the body. And to that I say, amen. It's a picture of the church that Paul writes about. But please hear me, please hear me. Whatever ministry God has called you to, you do not need to have a manual faith stamp it with their approval to be legitimate. <laughs> you are called to be who God has called you to be in all of the areas that God has called you to live. If you're a teacher, teach to the glory of God. If you're an electrician, don't burn down houses. I mean, if you're, if you're an engineer, do great work, right? Use the gifts that God has given you to serve the body in your home, in your family, in your neighborhood, and in your workplace. Our staff is not called to run everything. We're called to equip the saints to run with the ministry that God has placed in their hearts and their lives. Finally, Paul writes this. He's going to talk about another way of receiving or soaking in. He says, rather speaking the truth in love. So that's the way we give out. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from which the whole body joined together by every joint with which it's equipped when it's working properly makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And we are to be a truth speaking community of faith, which means that we both give and we receive. We receive truth. We receive the truth that God loves us, that he's for us. We receive encouragement we receive the invitation to confess and repent and walk into the kingdom. We're people who soak in by responding to truth. At times, truth can taste like a, a bitter pill. But it always yields wholeness and life and fruit and freedom. When was the last time you took what somebody said to heart and said, God, what do you want me to do with that? A little while back, I had the chance to go out on my uncle's sailboat, and he was teaching us how to sail, and at one point he said, hey, Ryan, do you want to steer? And I said, yes, absolutely. And what I found out was that sailing is really, really difficult. Okay? So I got behind the helm and was, sort of, was steering, and he said, listen, you've got to find the tension of where the wind blows to get your sail in the right place because if it's too far on one side, the wind will catch it and that boom will just swing across the deck and can take people out like a bowling ball. And if you're too far on the other side, the exact same thing will happen in the opposite way. You've got to manage that tension of where the wind is hitting so that the sail gets hit in the right spot and it propels the boat forward. In and out. It's a tension that as followers of Jesus, we are called to manage, not to resolve. We're called to do both, to pour our lives out for the sake 
of others, to prioritize others and to fight for unity. And we are also called to soak in, to be equipped and to respond to truth. And when that happens, Paul says, the body grows because it's built up in love. See, a mature community results in a love that's embodied. It's as though we corporately would say, let's manage this tension of in and out, and let's get our sail in the right direction, and let's get the wind behind us in a way where it blows, and our boat starts to move, and we say to the community around us, hey, jump in. Jump in. Jesus is doing a great work. I pray that we would be a body that both soaks in and pours out. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for being abundantly good to us. And our prayer as a church community would be, Lord, we want to live worthy. We want to live aligned with what you say is true of us and of you. And as we do that together, would you make much of the glory of your name? Make much of yourself through our lives. I pray that this is an encouraging, growing environment for every single person. And Lord, I pray for the people in this room, those that have been on the sideline for a long time and who you're calling to get in the game. Would they respond to your prompting? And Lord, would your people here come alongside them and affirm the gifts that you've put into them and call them to fan them into flame? that they might find great joy in serving you and walking with you, and that they might see your body built up and your kingdom come here in Escondido and North County in California and to the very ends of the earth, we pray. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen.